Welcome to this panel on sustainability leadership, especially as it relates to changing culture. There's a lot of sustainability work out there that I would call management, which is much more about giving people facts, numbers, telling them what to do, carrots and sticks, incentives. That's very important. Also to change culture, it takes leadership. And I'm part of a team that brings sustainability leadership coaching to people at various levels. It's sometimes very challenging to get. So we've put together this panel of people who have changed culture in organizations and in different contexts. So we have someone who was a senior executive, someone who is a consultant to executives, someone who is an academic who also works with the military, and someone who is a politician who now leads a nonprofit. Also, viewers, please put your questions into the chat. And without further ado, let's introduce the panelists. And by the way, I have the hardest time here because I've talked to each of these people, and it's going to be hard not to. I, I would want to talk with any of them for the full hour or more. But I want to do my best to get different voices from different places and see how things work in different places. Uh, maybe we could start with Lorna. Uh, Lorna, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Hi, Josh. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Lorna Davis, um, and I was in business my whole life. Um, and perhaps most notably for this conversation, I was the CEO of Danone or Danone North America when we became a B Corp, which is uh, a certification which, if any of you are interested, please look up bcorporation.net. Um, and these days I'm a board member and a coach because the whole subject of leadership in this space is really fascinating to me. Thank you. Uh, maybe Gautam next? Hi, uh, my name is Gotham Makunda. I'm a lecturer of the practice at the Yale School of Management, um, a senior advisor to America's Frontier Fund, and the author of the books Indispensable, When Leaders Really Matter, and Picking Presidents. And Bob? Bob Inglis. Um, I'm, uh, I run this thing called RepublicEN.org. Uh, it's uh, conservatives who care about climate change. And so uh, I spent uh, 12 years in the US Congress six years in six years out six years back and uh, during that time had quite a metamorphosis on climate and now i'm out to uh, get other conservatives into the climate conversation let's go around to michael thanks for having me i'm excited to join the conversation with all of you my name is michael ventura i'm a advisor entrepreneur author of the book applied empathy and specifically i work at the intersection of emotional intelligence empathy and leadership now let's start with what is culture, what is a sustainability culture? So in a business context, that might be the company that you're working with or your constituencies in a political situation. What does culture mean for you and related to sustainability and then also um, independent of sustainability in cultures that you've changed? Well, how are we defining culture first? Uh, and, when, and when I've worked with organizations to help discuss that, I often talk about it in the form of people, processes, principles, and what I call production. And that's just sort of what you make and what, what need it solves in the world. And those four things tend to go into creating a culture. A culture is static in and of itself. It's those things that make a culture real and felt and experienced inside organizations. And so when we start to talk about a sustainability culture, it also sort of begs the question of, how are we as an organization defining sustainability? Because that is not a uniformly defined term. And some people may think about it as waste reduction and you know think before you print in their footer. And some people might think about supply chain and resourcing and you know bigger scale versions of that. And so I think when we when we hear that term, we have to define our terms. And I don't think that either of them could ever be perfectly defined individually. They have to be defined for you and what your uh, organization really needs it to be. And we've heard things like triple bottom line and B Corp and stuff like that in the past. And those are good organizing principles to tuck businesses into. But some of the variables that I would consider when thinking about defining a sustainability culture would include environmental stewardship, economic and social responsibility, stakeholder engagement. And I don't just mean shareholder when I say that, I mean all stakeholders. Uh, compliance, regulatory, um, transparency in your supply chain, long-term thinking, you know, the list goes on. And so for me, when we ask a question that's seemingly su superficially simple, like how do you define sustainability culture? Once you lift up that rock, you see there's a lot more to do underneath there. 
personally, the way I've always thought about it, um, at the bare minimum, is sort of related to the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. And can we start there? And can we start to at least practice uh, our work in our businesses where we create some, at the baseline, a practice that is doing no harm? All right, so that's a very corporate context. And Bob, you're in a very different situation, but also just as different a culture. What is, what is culture for you? What, I mean, you describe uh, Republican as being the, if I get it right, the, uh, the eco-right. What is, what's the culture there? Is that something you can easily describe? I suppose um, uh, you can describe it this way. You know, there's an enormous environmental left in this country hundreds of millions of dollars are spent every year on the left. Um, a, a paucity is spent on the right. Um, and so uh, the results are predictable. You know, um, the left owns the environment. It owns the climate conversation and is uh, it's conducted in the language of the left. You know, it's a communitarian, egalitarian kind of language. It's not the hierarchical individualist language of the right. And so uh, no wonder uh, that conservatives can't figure out how to get in the conversation because they are excluded from the conversation uh, by virtue of, yeah, the left owning it. And so what we live to do is open that conversation to people on the right and um, fit to their culture, which is that you know, hierarchical individualism, you know, um, uh, here I'm borrowing heavily from Dan Kahan, uh, a friend who teaches at Yale in psychology and law. And he, he says that, you know, um, left uh, folks on the left progressives are communitarian egalitarians. They believe in community. They focus on fairness. Um, but people on the right are hierarchical individualists. They believe in working through a chain of command. So they're hierarchical and they're individualists. It's very important for them to win the gold star, to achieve it through individual effort. And so um, you can understand how it would be that a communitarian egalitarian language wouldn't work in the culture on the right of center. So anyway, that's what we live to do is, is change it so that those folks on the right have a feel that, um, yeah, that they're important to this conversation and that they can be part of it. I can't help but follow that up, but you're talking about the differences in, in the cultural norms. Do people on the right care less about the environment? No, I think uh, they, they do also care about the environment. It's just that they, they, they want to see it handled um, in a, um, a way that uh, they can say what they did in the war, daddy. You know, uh, that's what a, a hierarchical individualist needs to answer is, what'd you do in the war, daddy? Um, and they need it to be hierarchical they you know um they they don't chain themselves to the white house fence um they they go through the county council and the city council and the state house state senate the u.s congress kind of chain of command and so it's a different kind of organizing principle as well and galtham you are in academia but you also work with the military a fair amount uh, uh, i, I have in the past i don't currently that's right yeah and Take your pick in either of those contexts or both. Uh, what is culture there and as it regards sustainability? So to step back for a second, right? Culture is the norms, the rules, the processes, the procedures, the ways that we in an organization act. And we talk about organizations as having both sort of strong and weak cultures within the, you know, so almost any military organization will have a strong culture, but it's, you know, people know the military, so it's an easy way to describe it. If you look at the army versus the Marines, the army, they're both strong cultural organizations compared to like most companies, but the Marines have a much more defined, strong culture than the army, right? That's why we, the, the, the Marines will say, there is no such thing as an ex-Marine. The army doesn't say that. They just don't think about the world that way. Uh, and so that gives you a sense of, of, of that and on the corporate side, right? Um, McKinsey will say the same thing. There's no such thing as former McKinsey. They're just people who, who, who used to work there. So you, that, that sort of strong culture thing. So when you think about sustainability culture, right, for, for the... Right. I mean, in the military story, it has not been something they think about because, you know, when, when you are when you are when your culture is oriented around sort of people dying in the very short term, sustainability concerns are a much longer one. But I'll just note that this is something that's really shifted um, in a profound way because 
the Defense Department is kind of the only organ of the U.S. government that's tasked with thinking about the long term on a regular basis. And so you will see the DOD of all of the major government agencies is the one that's sort of most leaning forward on climate change is a huge problem for us. Like it's the one that's most thinking about, well, this is going to be a really big deal. It's going to affect everything from basing to, you know, to, to, to the threats that we're going to face. And so I suspect that will change over time in the culture of that organization, but, you know, more gradually. When you talk about academia, where I come from, right? So I'm, I'm very lucky. I come from the parts of academia that are far less resource constrained, right? Harvard and Yale. So they spent a lot of time talking about sustainability and like, you know, they put a lot of resources into it because they have a lot of resources to put into it. Is that the core of what they do? Not historically. Um, it's, it's something that they, that, that they think is important. It's, it's some combination of something that is important and something that they think will appeal to their major constituencies. Thanks. And, and Lorna, how about in the corporate world where you were? So interesting to listen to the other respondents to this question. So for me, uh, the, the, there are a few things that I think define a successful sustainability culture in business. The first is to really recognize how connected we are. Um, one of the things that defines business is separation and um, segregation, distinction of data. So for example, if you take a profit and loss statement or a balance sheet, these are sort of invented concepts really that separate a business from the rest of the world. And we measure and talk about those things a lot. When we help people in a business to see that we're connected to people upstream from us and downstream from us, and in fact, <clears throat> I like to use the metaphor of a river um, because businesses are on a river. They, they're taking in inputs, both, both human resources and physical resources, and they're converting them into some way, in some way into something that they're then selling on. And when you really understand how connected you are, what makes sense to you starts to look different. So if you're standing on a river and you realize that somebody is downstream from you, if you realize that your children are downstream from you, you're unlikely to piss in it. So once you really see that in a business, a whole lot of other things occur to you. Um, so I, I think the second thing that occurs to you is once you see that that's where you are, you start to ask different questions. You get really curious about things even though you might not have the answer. And so I think curiosity becomes sort of embedded into a culture that's really committed to sustainability. And then again, as an inevitable consequence, you have to collaborate because you can't solve the kinds of problems that occur to you from that more connected worldview. You can't solve them alone. So. I mean, this is a, I could speak for a long time about this subject, but I think that it begins with genuinely seeing how much of a web yeah. we are. Well, I want to follow up with you, Lorna, because what you're talking about, to me, sounds very different. It's, you're taking a different approach than, I would say, management as compared to leadership. Uh, what role does leadership play? Presumably, you played a role in changing the culture from less sustainable to more sustainable. Uh, what role does leadership play as opposed to management in changing culture? Hmm. Oh my gosh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, and it makes me uh, quite emotional actually when I think about it, think about the times that I helped and the times that I hindered. Um, I think that one of the things now that as, as a coach of many people in, the, in senior positions, I noticed that um, <clears throat> The, the idea that we don't know the answer to questions is very difficult for um, most people in management or even leadership to um, accept or come to grips with. And the reality is that um, there are many things to which we don't know the, the answer. There are many questions to which we don't know the answer. And not knowing is part of the human condition. And it's a beautiful part of the human condition. I mean, all of us are, you know, are very curious about many things that we don't know. And I think as a leader to, to sort of model not knowing as a, as a benefit, as a skill, as a, as a capability is, is an important element of leadership. Um, and I think that uh, 
the, the other thing that occurs to me is the creation of a different kind of language. Um, leaders create the context in which their organizations operate. And <clears throat> what I've noticed and what I noticed when I was running big business at, businesses and I've noticed since is that um, giving permission to different language, for, for example, the use of the word love, um, the, the use of, of words that are not traditionally found in business, but are deeply embedded in the human condition, allow, allows a business and allows the people in the business to come at the challenges that they face in a different way. So those are sort of two of the things that, that come to me. I guess the third point there that's sort of embedded in that is is vulnerability and it's um, perhaps a cliche these days and I'm sad that it's a cliche because leadership in these times requires deep open-hearted vulnerability um, and that's the biggest gift perhaps that you can give your your teams now your approach of talking a lot about emotions vulnerability this fits with my picture of what leaders do and what leaders handle, it's not, not just carrots and sticks. They have to get that too. But I'm curious how this sounds to, if, when Bob was talking about a hierarchical situation, do people have to know the answers? Does, is, does that conflict with it? And also, if you don't mind, Michael, I have a question from you from the audience, which is saying, um, what about from someone who's outside the organization? What do they do? Uh, so Michael, uh, can we put you on, on, um, uh, on deck? But Bob, what about, does hierarchy and not knowing the answers, emotions, vulnerability, do they fit together? Do they conflict with each other? Um, well, it depends on whether um, there's affirmation, I suppose, of the person who's uh, being quizzed there. You know, if, if the person is affirmed as valuable, then, um, you know, they can probably deal with some uncertainty. But if you are you know, in a situation where you're not terribly affirmed, then, uh, you know, you're, you're probably going to not enjoy that, uh, that position of not knowing, right? So what I'm talking about is, you know, <clears throat> the great concern on the right, which I don't think the left really realizes, is um, this talk of, um, of uh, uh, like canceling people is really visceral on the right. Um, and, you know, I had, a, had an experience with this one time. There's a University of Idaho professor who's very much with us on climate. He's very involved. He's a young man in his early 70s, very vigorous fella, uh, whiter than me, you know, whiter hair and whiter skin even than me, I think. And um, he um, had, was telling a joke on himself. And he said that a student said to him in class one day, okay, boomer. And uh, the professor laughed, and we all laughed with him at his joke. And then I caught the pain on his face. There's an awareness that basically what that student was saying to my very dear friend, this 70-plus-year-old fella, we don't need you anymore. Um, you know, and if that's the message to that very secure professor, I mean, he has tenure after all, um, and... Uh, you know, he's with us and he's really with it. Um, but yet there was pain. Imagine if you don't have tenure and you're that Fox viewer who feels that you're going to be canceled. You know, a, a barnacle on the ship of state that we're going to rub off on this next sandbar. Then you circle up with your, your friends, you know, and you decide to arm up. Because for goodness sakes, this is a war. They're out to get us. Um, and so that's really something that I think the left just doesn't realize that it's doing in this climate conversation is sort of really putting people on the right in a very vulnerable spot. So, no, Josh, in that case, they can't deal with the uncertainty because um, they're being looked at already suspiciously. And so any lack of an answer for a hierarchical individualist who doesn't know what he did in the war, daddy, uh, is probably in a very awkward position. So you have to sort of, you know, the first thing I think we've got to do to uh, 
uh, to conservatives is say, you know, what we say on our website at republican.org, a conservative and care about climate change, you're among the most important people in the world. It ain't going to happen without you. Um, left is going about as far as it can go on climate. It's up to people on the right to join the conversation. And so you're really important. Um, and so that's the first thing you had to do. I think if you got a, you know, I used to practice commercial real estate law. If you're in a transaction and there's some indispensable partner who's possessed of a terrible inferiority complex, first thing you got to do is go build them up so that they can feel like they're important, that they can make a contribution to this partnership you're proposing, then they can engage. And so uh, that's uh, it's, uh, what we got to do, we think, uh, for folks on the right is, is help them to engage, help them to see how important they are. So the first example you gave was exclusion. And you talked about build them up. I, I mean, I think these were, can you say more about affirm? I mean, I think that was the word you used at the beginning of like, you have to affirm them. So build them up, what, is it um, make them feel understood? Is it listen to them? Is it all these things and more? Yeah, it's basically, and specifically in the case of climate, it's to tell them, you've got good ideas, really good ideas. You know, uh, three ways to fix climate change, you know, you can attempt to regulate emissions. Problem is you can't regulate Chinese emissions from here in America, you're not solving climate change. Second, you can incentivize clean energy but those tax credits don't mean anything to a company that doesn't pay American taxes. So you can clean up local air, but you're not fixing climate change yet. Third way you can do it is to price in the negative effects of burning fossil fuels worldwide. And then you've got the whole world going, right? And so that's a really a free enterprise idea that fits with Milton Friedman to the max, you know, um, happens to also be, what Al Gore is for as well. Um, but, uh, you know, so, um, so you can tell them, you got really good ideas. You, you're, you're on solid ground. Um, and you know what, here's what I say to people that are on the left, if you want to engage Charlie at Thanksgiving, you know, Uncle Charlie's coming to Thanksgiving. He's the conservative that's might get awkward conversation going at the dinner table. On the climate topic, what you need to do is turn to Charlie and say, be vulnerable, be a person, a progressive who's vulnerable to Charlie and say, you know what, Charlie, we really need you. We can't do this without you. You know, given that vulnerability and given that approach to Charlie, you might just melt his heart and then he'll go right to his head and he will understand that, yeah, just internalizing negative externalities will fix the problem. And by the way, that is, Milton Friedman to the max, but it is also what Al Gore has been for for about 30 years. Um, and so, um, so that's what it takes, I think, is some vulnerability from the left, but also some affirmation on the right. I want to keep following up on that, but I do have this on deck question to Michael. Michael, if you're outside an organization and you don't have the levers of someone inside, can you still lead that organization? If so, how, how does that work? So, uh, yeah, I think there's two parts that I'd answer. The first for me is being a consultant, being on the outside has always been about bringing objectivity to the conversation. I think one of the things that you're paid for when you're a consultant is to have a third perspective, right? You're not the one looking in from, from the inside out, but you're also not the shareholder or the employee who's sort of looking up to or out to leadership to try to figure out an answer, right? And, you know, for me that, that involves being able to explore and provoke different thinking outside of the politics and the power structure that sometimes people internally have a hard time or are butting up against, right? We, you know, the worst thing that happens to a consultant is you stop consulting for that company, right? The, the worst thing that happens to an employee who challenges power structures or sort of says the thing they're afraid to say, and then it creates a ripple is, you know, they may be out looking for a new job. And so there's, an, uh, there's a bit of a responsibility on the part of the consultant to be willing to push the edge a little bit more, to ask the, the, the what if questions a second and a third time to maybe sort of unearth something else. And I, I wanna to respond to something Lorna said earlier that stuck with me about leaders getting the right answers, um, getting to where they are because of having all of the good answers, which I totally agree with. The thing that leaders need to realize is you got to where you are because you had the answers but once you arrive there you have to have the questions and you have to be willing to 
not just do what you've always done, but question things a bit more because now you're in a position to do so. And I think that that's a, that presents a really interesting challenge when, when we think about the role leadership plays. The second point I wanna make about leadership is I don't know if we're all using the word leadership as a dog whistle for executives, or if what we actually mean is that leadership can come from anywhere in an organization. And, and I believe it can and should. And how do we build the sorts of cultures where anyone in an organization can feel empowered, no matter their rank or file, to feel heard and respected, whether or not their idea or their observation or their, or their proposal gets stamped and moved down into implementation, that's neither here nor there. The, the, the larger point is, have we created the space where someone can say something and say, hey, we should try this a different way. And Josh, when we prepped for this conversation, there was something you and I talked about. It's a quick, it's a quick anecdote, but it's a good one about where this occurred with a, a client I was working with at one time, uh, Levi Strauss. And they found that there was a really wasteful process in making denim. 40 to 60 gallons of water for every wash in a pair of jeans. It's a lot of water, right? And we all have jeans. Did we all know that? Probably not. And so it didn't come from the top down. It didn't come from some leader saying we need to do something, but it was a product development person who said, this seems really bad. And maybe we can figure out a different way to do this. And by working with manufacturers and asking some questions and breaking some rules, they figured out a way to create a wash in a pair of denim with eight ounces of water using sort of essentially a series of rock tumblers, right? So they used abrasion instead of water to create the same effect. And at the end of that, Levi's launched a thing called Waterless, which is jeans made in this process. But they had a choice as an organization. They could have said, we're gonna hide this, we're gonna patent it, we're gonna make it our special thing and people will buy ours more than theirs because we've appealed to their values and their sense of consciousness around the planet. They did not do that. They made it an open patent that anyone in the industry could use. And they said, we encourage you to do this because if, if only we do it, it's not enough. And so that leadership, that thought leadership in that moment was the choice of an organization to say, the world will be a better place by sharing this versus protecting it. And I think that's the kind of leadership we need. So I have, I have, a, I have a follow up question, but I'm going to take the uh, viewer's question first of what I don't feel understood and appreciated. How do I do? How do I get involved if I'm not? I mean, it's great if, if the leader creates that culture, but what if someone isn't in that situation and they feel like I do want to change these things, but I, you know, people don't listen to me. I mean, it's often, it, it's, a, it's a hard question to answer in the abstract because there are a lot of variables that sit underneath that, right? Like, is this person in a position to influence culture? Is this, you know, there's a lot of sort of sub questions I, I immediately kind of pop up that, that I think of when I, when I respond to that. One of the things that I would immediately just sort of encourage someone who's running up against that wall to do is to understand and practice a sense of empathy for the person on the other side, because, you know, the, you know, kind of a, a, a colloquial phrase I often use is every monster likes to eat something. Find out what that monster likes to eat. If they want praise and accolades for their decision-making, then set up your recommendations such that they can feel praise and accolades when it moves through. If they want deference, then come in with the, the, the point of view of deference. Get rid of your own ego and your own bias and show up in a way that feeds that thing on the other side that's blocking you, whatever they need to soften. Maybe they need data. Maybe they need a compliment. Maybe they need something that you're not inclined to do first, but if you're able to sort of shift into that state and soften the other side, you'll be surprised how much smoother the rest of the conversation tends to go. I gotta say, this is so valuable to me because so much of what I hear in sustainability is about facts and numbers and hard things and measurables. And, and all of you are talking about emotions and vulnerabilities and listening and, and going to where the other person is. I really hope that this is, well, I'm, I'm, I hope that I learn a lot from this, but I, that I will then practice it. But I hope also that other people see this. Gotham, let's jump to you in your situation. I mean, you're working with some of the most longstanding organizations in this country, and they have very strong cultures. What role does leadership play in influencing them? Either you seeing it happen or you teaching about how it happened. Yeah. So, so it's critical and overwhelming. And I'll say is it is possible to do cultural change from sort of the bottom or from the middle. But it's not easy. I mean, it's never easy under any circumstances, but it's a lot harder than, you know, than it is when the CEO or their, you know, someone with the equivalent title is saying, this is something we really need to do for um, it is it is too. I think I think 
because people on the left tend to be so non-hierarchic, they tend to maybe to too easily dismiss the importance of formal authority, which can be very great in lots of organizations. Um, so first one is it really helps to, to really helps to have this leadership. It is neither necessary nor sufficient, but you're a huge step of the way there if you have you know true commitment on the top of the organization. Um, and I'll just note the first the first part of that is the realization and maybe the is the realization of the importance of change. Right. So quite often organizations, because of their what you know, what you might almost call their intellectual immune system, will like reject the idea that this cultural change is even necessary. This culture has gotten us so far. It must be a good culture because we are a successful organization. Why would we want to change it? Right. And we sort of forget that there are all these structural pressures, there are all these circumstances surrounding the organization, and all of them are pushing you to not change the culture. And I'll I'll just note, right, there is no group of institutions where cultural change is more needed than in the environmental movement right now. Um, right. So, as, you know, when, when I look at this from, as you said, from a facts-based sort of numbers, there, like, there is no transition towards sustainability in the United States that does not involve a lot of things that large portions of the environmental movement sort of reflexively oppose, right? Construction, things like that. Um, you know, I, I'm an MIT guy, I'm going to say nuclear power, but even if that sort of makes you break out in hives, there are a lot of things that we really, really, that, you know, that, that are, there is not an alternate, right? There's no way to get here from there without doing these things. So we often have this problem um, that is pretty profound and something that, that, that if that cultural shift doesn't happen, um, 200 years from now, historians will not write about the right wing and how it blocked environmental change. Um, I mean, probably because that'll just be written, you know, those sort of the baseline of the story. It'll be written in about how the people who cared most about environmental change made it impossible for us to try and counteract the problem. And we really need to think about that, that the epitaph, the epitaph for the American, for the, for the, for the, for the environmental movement should not be, we made the world safe for global warming. And sometimes it seems like that is actually the goal. Um, so once you have realized and committed to this idea that there is that environment that cultural change is crucial right the first the the, the thing that i was that when i both when i teach it when i observe the people who do it very well is you is everything matters right so ceos for example one of the reasons it's psychologically so difficult to be ceo um is you have to say the same thing a thousand times a day and for most people, that's just really difficult, right? It's so boring and it's so like, like it just drives people crazy. But if you say the same thing 999 times a day and then the thousandth time you say something just slightly different, everybody notices the thousandth time and that's the message that gets through. Um, you need to be, and it's not just of course verbal communication. You've like, um, so the great change scholar, John Cotter did a study of senior managers of companies. And he said, well, it was just a time study. He said, what do they spend their time doing? And John assumed there would be a lot of like thinking and problem solving and research. What he found out was that 70% of their time was spent communicating, right? And that one of the things to say is that, is that almost everything you do is communication in ways that you don't always anticipate, right? Who you, who you promote affects who's in the senior levels of your organization. It is also how you communicate the values of the organization. Because if you promote people because they are making a lot, because they're very profitable for you, but they don't abide by the values of the organization, what everyone in the organization will believe is that you don't actually take those values seriously. And they'll be right. Um, and so this set of sort of, of sort of, thing, of thinking about sequencing and different ways of getting, and the fact that you need to pull every, right, say is there are many, many different levers to change an organization and you need to pull all of them. Right from setting an example to communicating to how you pay people to how you promote people to who you fire right to what your value statement is to how you interact with people outside the organization. All every one of these things is a plays a critical role, and if you get one of them wrong your change effort will usually fail, which is why right the john cotter's again different research project he did demonstrated that more than 70% of all organizational change efforts fail. It's really not easy to do. I think I saw people nodding when Gotham said, uh, we need to change our culture. And I feel like the, but the left has more of a voice. They're not really focusing on changing culture, even impeding it. The right doesn't have the voice. Uh, and left right is not the only way to look at these things. But if we have to change culture and people aren't really doing it, I'm curious how that actually plays out. And so I don't think we have great examples within sustainability of changing culture. 
but I wonder if we could get personal with each of you of, could you talk about times when you've changed culture, seen culture change? Um, what have been some wins or some frustrations or successes? If someone wants to jump in, what's worked that people could, that you've done in the past with your constituencies or your organization that others could learn from and bring that to sustainability? Or what's something that has not worked that uh, we should work to avoid? Well, I'll go first because I actually want to jump in on this question of, uh, you know, how senior a leader you have to be to make change and the question about outside the organization versus inside. Um, because I think it's connected to success stories. So I'm just going to go on a bit of a riff here. Um, I think that the edges of organizations are much more permeable than we like to think. Uh, organizations are porous, con you know, connected beings that are that are part of a much broader infrastructure, much broader system than we like to believe. And uh, when young people, and I spend a lot of time with youngsters saying to me, oh, you know, my boss doesn't get it. How can I help? What can I do? I'm not in a powerful enough position. My invitation is always to look for alliances, the broadest alliances that you can get outside of your organization. So for example, if you take a customer, I mean, organizations are customer serving systems. So if your customer says to you, I'm not going to buy your product until you can demonstrate that it's carbon neutral, it's amazing how quickly you'll get your act together to answer the question that your customer wants. And oftentimes customers are, um, are, are emerging allies for you. You might start to ask questions of them of what they really want in order to help your organization to shift in that direction. And you can be quite junior in an organization. And let me tell you, the senior people in your organization are going to really get excited if, if there's a connection to the customer. Next point is suppliers. I mean, suppliers, in all my time running businesses, when I used to speak to suppliers, they used to always talk, tell me how frustrated they were that the questions that they were asked or the specs that they were given from the people in my organization were so limited that they didn't allow the supplier to really help us make a difference. Many of the, of the environmental changes that we need to make in materials are sort of major jump changes. If you ask a question about what you can make on an existing piece of equipment or with existing volumes, you often get a, you know, a kind of a price answer that's not a good one. But if you ask a different kind of question and invite the supplier into the bigger issue that you have, They'll, bec they'll become an ally uh, and, and they'll help you in ways you've never imagined. And, and finally, and this is one of the things that saddens me the most about operating in the US, is we don't, op we don't see the government as an ally. The government is the best ally, honestly. If you, one of the biggest problems that organizations have is they're struggling to maintain their com competitiveness. They're trying to do good things, but they've got a competitor who's, you know, cutting a corner. The quickest way to shift the entire industry is to get legislation, to ban a particular substance, to put a different tax. And you don't have to do that at a federal level. I mean, federal's hard. You can do it at a state level or even a city level. So you can find allies all around you that can help make change. And when I think about the examples that have been successful with me, for me, uh, Many of them have included those kinds of examples. And I could go on, but I won't because I want to hear from the others. Anyone else? I'm happy to chime in. I have a quick example that, that responds a little bit to what Lorna was just saying, and then, and then I'll answer uh, for my own, own personal background too. But um, for many years, I've been a part of an organization that works to provide support and empowerment for indigenous cultures. And one of the things that we did at one point many years ago was um, in unearthing how uh, poor the supply chains were for harvesting mica, which is an ingredient that goes into a lot of cosmetics, was we realized if any one cosmetic company were to take that on on their own, they would blow their whole margins and they wouldn't be able to do it without pricing themselves out relative to the competition. And because this organization had a relationship to the United Nations, it had enough clout to get some of the heads of those organizations together to sit in a room and talk about this. And what ended up happening was when we showed the poor uh, supply chain issues with MICA and said, this is not something any one of you can do individually. You all have to collectively agree to do this in order to shift the direction of, the, of this industry and the, and, the, and, the, and the treatment of labor that's taking place in the, in the harvesting of MICA. 
they all agreed because they knew that all of them would have to do it and it wasn't an individual risk for their business. It was the right thing to do for an industry. And so sometimes to Lerna's point, getting everyone around the table and having a harder conversation, but one that requires collective sort of arm locking can sometimes work. For me personally, some of the, the biggest wins, frustrations, it's a little bit of a paradoxical answer from, from my perspective, building a professional services firm that was founded on the principle of, of empathy, where people feel motivated and supported to do their best work. And great, it was audacious, I'm very proud of it. It was also the most frustrating thing that I think I may have ever done because we set the bar at a certain level for what we would do and how we would show up every day and how we would deliver our work every day. And that led to the expectations rising commensurately. When you say this is what you're out to do, anytime you fall short of that, to Gotham's point about the, the, the thousandth time that you slip off message or you don't deliver against that, that's the one people notice and remember. And I, and I have one quick example from the, the pandemic that stands out very clearly for me. We were working with YouTube at the time and in the wake of George Floyd's murder and a bunch of the other social justice issues that were emerging, there was this discussion about whether or not we should be working with YouTube from my employees uh, because they said, you know, they allow uh, far you know uh, extremist content to live on their platform and there's a first amendment issue that really sort of emerged as we started to talk about that and we talked about well what are the other clients we work with and why would we work with youtube who has a point of view on first amendment and and communication and the rights that are associated with that as a platform versus the aclu who was also a client of ours and with the aclu you know the aclu defended the tiki tortures in charlottesville Right. But we are OK working with them, but not the other. Right. And so there's these all these little complicated decisions down at the ground level when you start to set a standard for how you will show up for people with respect to things like sustainability and culture change and building building organizations that that can ultimately affect change at scale that you have to continue to throw logs on that fire and the repetition and the integrity and the and meeting the bar or exceeding the bar becomes increasingly hard. But all of this work is hard. And we wouldn't all be sitting on a panel talking about this. If this was easy, it would have been solved long ago. So I think it's important to remember that, yes, this is audacious, this conversation, but it's ultimately in the service of something that, that we need. We're at about three quarters of an hour, and we're going to take more questions from the audience. Now, I'm part of a team that is bringing leadership in sustainability to you, and Danny's part of that team. And Danny, can you share a bit more about what we're bringing to people? Sure. Thanks, Josh. Uh, I'm representing uh, the rest of the team here as well. Uh, we are a bunch of um, experienced senior leaders and executive and leadership coaches, and we have been working with people that are in organizations and are challenged with the, exactly the topics we have been talking about here. So I want to thank the panelists for this uh, intriguing and inspiring conversation. Uh, there's more to be talked about for sure. And I also want to thank you, the audience, for tuning into this conversation. Some of the th services that we're offering is one-on-one -on -one coaching, workshops, masterminds, roundtables to help review where you are in this journey. Uh, if you need a speaker, we're all ears. So feel free to reach out to us at spodekleadership.com, and uh, we'll be in touch with you for sure. And with that note, I'm going to give back to Josh. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, Danny. And yeah, we really want to help people get past not knowing what to do and, and changing culture, not just management. I want to keep this going, but I'm going to switch the axes from left right to something that really infuriates me. When I hear an old person say, I look to the young people to do things. I, can't, I see the young people, I have faith that they will fix the problems that we created. I hear an old person abdicating. I hear an old person Young people, many of them can't vote. They, they generally aren't on boards. They're not executives. And I, see, I, hear, and, and I do hear a lot of young people, like teaching at NYU, they get infuriated when they talk about people who did all these different things, and now they say, we have to fix it. So what about between old and young? How, about, how do we activate older people who are saying things like, oh, the, young, the younger generations have so much faith. They'll, they'll fix it. Now, we are all older people. We're not, I mean, it's, we've been able to vote for a long time. We've been executives and things like that. So it's a little harder, I think, when we're the ones that are, maybe you guys see it differently, but to me, a lot of people, and I'm 52, so people my generation and older are saying, well, we can't do anything. 
sorry, but you know, it's the next generation. What do you do to, to activate older people? One thing that comes to mind for me is exposure. I think that one of the things that, that happens a lot is people demographically tend to you know, populate their, their closest circle with people that, that look and sound fairly similar. And you know, one of the benefits um, that we get, we used to get a lot more of when we worked in offices, um, just taking a business example, was that we had people of all demographics sitting and eating lunch or, or bumping into each other in hallways or having that osmotic opportunity to share information that is less structured and set around a time that we're all getting on a Zoom call and then getting off one. And so we've lost that ability to co-mingle with people outside of our sort of core psychographics and demographics. And so that takes effort, certainly, but being able to hear different points of view, to be able to shift out of your, your norms and to go listen and ask good questions and hear how other people think about things, um, I feel like was, was more accessible uh, in our pre-pandemic days than it is now. And I think it will take a little more effort for folks to, to try to rebuild that muscle again after it's atrophied. It feels like older people have a lot more political and Hollywood power than young people. I mean, young people will get it, but they don't have it but yet. By, but by the time they do, they'll be old. Um, yeah. So, so, um, so, so the first thing I'd, I'd say, right, is, is kicking the can down the road can be an appropriate strategy. Well, there's something, not something you hear people say very often, but actually there are situations where it can be. If it will be easier to solve the problem in the future than it is now, either because the problem itself will shrink or because your resources will grow so enormously, um, you know, saying later is not always the wrong strategy. I get why OK Boomer is not a productive rhetorical strategy. I also understand why a 22-year-old might say, you know, your generation took a world that was in great shape and handed us a world that is not, so maybe it's time to step down, um, right? I don't think that's productive, but I think it is understandable is the distinction I would make between those two. Um, and so in terms of like, how do you activate older people, right? All of our thing on is that it's the same way you activate anybody. It's just a different, it's, it's, it's just, it's just that the tactics are, it's the, it, what that means is you have to speak to shared values, right? So what is it? One of the things that I think often hinders the left's effectiveness, I would say, right, the, the environment of is it's difficulty in speaking the language of patriotism, right? If you want to get people in the United States to get on your side, waving the American flag is actually really effective. We tend not to do it. Um, right, speaking the language of, 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 of right, so what the political psychology literature on, you know, on sort of the way, way po different political decisions is, is conservatives tend to care a lot more about purity than liberals do, right? There's some research on that. We often, we don't use that kind of language because it's just not something that's natural, but it's something that we need to think about a lot more seriously about understanding what are the values of these older powerful people and how can we speak to them? Because at the end of the day, there are very few people who go through life thinking, I'm going to do the wrong thing today. Right? That's not actually how most people think about the world. What they think about the world is they create stories for themselves about how this thing that they want to do is actually the right thing to do. And if we want to persuade them, what we need to do is get inside those stories and, and shift them to things that are, in fact, more better for everybody, not just better for them. And do, do either of you other, uh, do, do Michael or Lorna want to follow up on that? Yeah, I, could, I, I, I noticed myself finding the conversation a difficult one um, because it has an altitude that I don't find helpful. Um, you know, I, I, I find that the way the, the context in which we have this conversation is important. And, and oftentimes when we get big and philosophical and lean back in our chairs, we actually, you know, come straight up against our most powerless place. So the question that I ask people all the time is, where are you personally invested? I mean, the, choosing my, uh, using the language that suits me, I say, where does your heart break? Because where my heart breaks is my point of power. So I'll give you an example. I am deeply passionate about rhino conservation. Anybody who knows anything about me will know this. I'm South African. I cannot vote. I'm a green card holder. So there's a whole bunch of axes of power that are not available to me. And just because of my accent, I'm actually excluded from many conversations. But I'm included into other conversations because of my accent and because of my passion. I'm also a deeply passionate birder. Now, if you 
look at both of those subjects, conservation of rhinos and the protection of birds, very quickly you come up against climate change, very quickly you come up against the whole question of environmental, um, you know, the, all the environmental justice, and you come up against social justice, because for, I don't need to tell you how you do that. Um, so when I'm in those two conversations with people who care about those two subjects, I have access to shifting the conversation in a way that's deeply powerful and helpful. And that's, I, as soon as I'm in there, I'm comfortable. Very quickly in birding, I get into the whole question of age and race and, you know, all sorts of things. So I guess my point is, I don't think that for most of us, sweeping generalizations about age or even race are helpful, but finding subjects, finding subsets in the crisis in which we find ourselves that move us beyond our intellect seems to me to be the most fertile place to hang out. I want to make sure to let people get to, they're probably eating their lunches and have to get to work pretty soon, so I want to keep going. Uh, I want to get last comments from everyone, but there is this one question that someone else commented on of, uh, if, if anyone has anything, maybe lightning round, quick answers, if that's possible here. But what happens when you get pushback from the organization saying, well, this is important to us, but we have to look at the bottom line? Or you know, what about when they say, well, you know, we'll get to that soon, but profits? Uh, maybe Lorna, then uh, Michael, then Gotham? Uh, so I get asked this question a lot, and I, um, uh, you know, one of the things I love about business is uh, that business people are trained to juggle the short term and the long term all the time. Uh, we're completely capable of trading off uh, in both directions where appropriate. You know, for example, I don't know, I remember when we did our first, uh, you know, first look at, at, at our sort of sustainability challenges. We were stunned to discover that we didn't have a human rights policy and therefore we had all sorts of potential, uh, you know, fragility in our supply chain. And you could fix that in a nanosecond, didn't cost you very much money at all. We also were staggered to discover that we didn't have solar panels or wind, those things, yeah, yeah uh, at any of our factories. Now, uh, that required a capital investment that you'd have to phase over five years. And we were completely capable of balancing the long-term and the short-term implications of that by phasing that expenditure. My, my point is that the, the, the juggle, the dance of profits and, and financial results and uh, the sustainability question is, is just an obvious way to operate when it matters to you. I, I agree entirely with Lorna that business people are sort of trained to trade off the long-term versus the short-term and be able to do that. I would say the problem with the way we have structured the model of financial capitalism we do in the United States right now is is, is sort of our business leaders have every incentive to not do that. Um, there's, you know, there is, for example, enormous research that shows that um, there's a survey that's done fairly regularly that shows something like, you know, like something like a majority of CFOs would kill a NPV positive project in order to make their quarterly earnings numbers, right? So you would actually kill a project that was good for the company just to meet this quarter's numbers. Um, and this is, you know, really troubling at every level. Like if you're, if you're, if, no matter what you care about, this is a bad thing. Um, but it does tell us something about the extent to which financial pressures in particular have sort of forced us to think, not forced business to think in a very short-term perspective in the United States. And so what I'd say is when you hear that, there are two approaches I would, uh, the bottom line thing to, one is, is it possible to think more holistically about the bottom line by which I don't mean, oh, well, let's, you know, like the warm fuzzy things where we think about the holistic bottom line, right? So one of the big transitions for the Defense Department to go back to where I started was when it started costing out equipment to include the cost of fuel to keep that equipment running over an extended period of time. And they suddenly realized that actually their cost estimates were completely wrong because all of their stuff was burned enormous amounts of fuel and they still have to pay for it. Right, like, 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 it's not like that cost evaporates. They actually still have to pay for it. So taking that into account actually did have an enormous and meaningful effect on the way they they work through. Right, what, what, what do we buy, and how does it do that? So that's what I say. Think about the bottom line is sometimes, sometimes you're calculating the bottom line wrong, 
And if you think about that, these sort of longer term things, you, you might think you might calculate it in a way that's much better for the environment. And then Michael? There's, there are lots of ways to measure performance and, and profitability on a, on a rolling quarterly basis is one of them. But um, most people don't choose to work at a company because of that. They choose to work at a company because they see themselves there in the future. Most people don't buy stock because they, unless you're shorting things or, or, or playing in a, in a day trading market, you're, you're investing in someone's earning potential down the line, right? Like I believe this company will be more innovative, more profitable, more successful later. So I'm going to buy it now and hope for, and hope for their improvements, right? So there are other things we can look at. There are other measures that can encourage us to play the long game more regularly while not being naive about the short game that also is the necessity of any business that has to do its job and keep the lights on for its people. Let's start wrapping up too. Uh, Michael, could you, any last words? First of all, again, love this conversation, love the diversity of the panel and the thoughts that were shared. Um, and thank you for, for including me. One of the things that I'll, I'll leave with, which is uh, related to my sort of center of my bullseye and the work that I do practicing empathy and helping organizations learn how to do it. We often think about standing in someone else's shoes, right? And if I go and stand in Gotham shoes, and say, what would Michael want in Gotham shoes? That's not the same as going over and saying, Gotham, what do you want? Help me understand you, help me understand your perspective. There's this implicit assumption that empathy as a practice is about guessing, guessing what that person would want or guessing what I would want from afar if I was to move closer and be in those shoes. And the real work and the real effectiveness of the practice is, is acknowledging that you don't know and going over and asking and being willing to change your behavior based on new data. So if I could encourage people to do anything, it would be to ask more questions and be willing to change once you understand things more fully. I'm gonna get last statements from, from you, but I gotta, I'm gonna give mine first, is that I really value what people have been saying because what you have been saying we need and, and the way to do it of changing culture and through acknowledging our own vulnerabilities, acknowledging emotion, all of these things of culture it's not what I see. This is something that I think we really, all of us, from whatever political spectrum or age or whatever, we have to start working on what changes culture. And I believe, I believe that begins with ourselves, the, skill, the social and emotional skills that we have to learn in order to practice to do it effectively. You've done it throughout your careers. And I, thank you very much for bringing these on. Uh, I hope I didn't preempt you, Gautam, but Gautam, I wonder if you could share your thoughts on this conversation overall. Uh, I mean, the conversation overall has been fascinating, and I, I, I sort of wish we could have gone on for lo longer. And um, the problem is it's, it's sufficiently diverse that you need more time just to drill down on all the different perspectives. We shouldn't underestimate the importance of systemic change, right? Like, like the most important levers we can pull are the ones that change the incentives. People will generally do what they're incentivized to do. And over the long run, the most important levers we can pull are the ones that change the incentives that people want. To pull, that people want. If, if businesses can make more money by operating in a sustainable fashion in a way that their leadership understands that this is the, the causal chain, they will do it. There is nothing that is more powerful than the ability of a, you know, like for businesses in a free market to make money. And it is our job, and you know, like our real job as citizens and activists is to shape the environment in such a way to channel those, direct, those, those efforts in those directions. Let's not, if we, if we changed our calculations so that doing, being sustainable was the easy choice instead of the hard one, you would get very, very different results. In America today, um, you know, it's, you can say it this way, the left has cultural power. They seek to add to that political power. The right has political power. It'd like to add to that cultural power. The setup of the constitution basically favors the right in this country because, you know, after all, you know, uh, South Carolina has two senators and uh, seven House members. California has two senators and 52 House members. So we are way overrepresented in the U.S. Senate in South Carolina, right? Um, and so, so we have political power. But I think there's an awareness on the right that cultural power is almost surely more lasting than political power. And so the challenge you have is some people on the right feel that they've lost the culture war and that now they're just trying to protect what's left um, because they really do feel overwhelmed by that cultural push 
And so that's the, that's, that's why you feel a, a, a sort of a reaction um, to it. Um, but, but that is a, it's a structural problem. Left has cultural power, seek political power. Right has political power. They'd like to add cultural power. They just don't have it um, because, you know, Hollywood wins ultimately um, because they, they change our hearts and minds. Um, and so you can hold on to those two votes in the U.S. Senate, but you have a sense that maybe it's going to change out from under you. And that's, that's where you feel a lot of uncertainty, I think, on the right right now. One of the things that I think is really important in this conversation is to reassure people, uh, to use Bob's term, to, to affirm people that they've got what it takes to do what we need to do to save this magnificent place that we live on. Humans are incredibly resourceful. And, you know, I use the metaphor of parenting a lot, even though I'm not a parent myself. The very act of parenting requires everything you need, short term, long term, you know, a, a, an understanding of, of soft stuff, an understanding of hard KPIs. Uh, you need to use a whole community. Nobody raises a child by themselves. Um, the whole sort of process of doing one of the most basic and the most difficult things that a human being can do is embedded in parenting and exactly the same skills are required for tackling some of the challenges that the world faces right now. So look in the mirror and realize you got this. Well, I want to thank everyone for bringing to the conversation your full experience and recognizing what we don't have, what we could use, how to do it, what's worked, some things that haven't, to disagree with each other, to agree with each other. So I want to thank uh, Bob, Gautam, Lona, and Michael. Also behind the scenes, I have to thank Danny, and also behind the scenes is Terry Mendelson and Andrew Elowit, who are part of the team. We want to bring to you how to change culture. What I think we agree is one of the most important things that isn't being worked on right now. And we'll bring more of these panels. But to our panelists today, thank you very much.